0: Welcome to the Words Matter Library.
1: I'm so happy to be here today with my good friend, Dr. Eddie Glau Jr. Eddie is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of Religion and African American Studies and the Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. I have had a great time getting to know Eddie as a fellow MSNBC analyst and we have the unique distinction of both being Native Mississippians. And Eddie is one of the most brilliant people in my world, and I'm so excited to have him here to talk with well, us. Well,
0: I'm just so delighted to be here with you. Finally, we get a <laughs> chance to talk, right?
1: I know. I have just read your 2015 book, Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, and I was impressed with How many punches you throw. You really are incredibly unsparing. And in a way that I think people hesitate to talk about race, you don't pull any punches when it comes to be it President Bush, be it President Obama, anyone, everyone. You're pretty equal opportunity. And that's why I feel the book is so important because at the end of the day, it is a book about opportunity. So the book starts out in Ferguson in 2014. And can you talk about why you decided to start the book in Ferguson, Missouri?
0: You know, in some ways, it was the irony. Uh, first of all, let me just say thank you for for saying that about the book. Obviously, you're a partisan in the sense that you have a position, that you have a set of commitments that animate what you take yourself to be up to. But what you try to do is you try to be balanced and thoughtful in the way in which you put forward your claims. And if some people come to be criticized uh, then you offer it and 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 then other people who you might be you most people think you're in you're in solidarity with they come and uh, come under criticism then you have to offer the criticism there as well
1: and while it's unsparing it's definitely more than fair and that's the fault <laughs> well, that underlies the premise of the book i think that we have been way too cautious in how we have addressed the underlying flaws of American democracy.
0: Right, right. And, you know, I, I, I started in Ferguson because I thought something was happening there. You know, I thought this was a, a working class community. Uh, it didn't respond in a way that felt like it was consistent with the traditional racial theater, where the, you know, the leaders, the, the typical leaders of, of black America come down, organize a march, make a series of demands. People, Say we're going to do better, and then we sing "Kumbaya" and we move on to the next moment. Ferguson was something different, and I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand the young folk who were who were involved in it. So I found myself in this meeting. I just came down after all of the lights and cameras had went away, and I I found myself in this meeting at the TFA, uh, St. Louis Teach for America, and the students started talking, and then I realized that wait a minute, I think I'm with some serious folks here, some folks who are in the middle of it. And it turned out to be Brittany Packnett and, and, you know, uh, then eventually DeRay and and others and Netta. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm finally found, I'm at the epicenter of this thing. And so what I wanted to do is to kind of think about this moment, this opening moment and the irony of it happening in the context of the first African-American president. And that became the kind of opening scene to think about how race continues to confound us uh, and having everything to do with our refusal to look it squarely in the face.
1: And I feel like you do a really excellent job of telling a broader narrative and inserting some key idea ideas and developing those themes. And let's start out with what you describe as opportunity deserts within our country.
0: Right. So we were thinking about, I was thinking about the, you know, the 2008 d- downturn, right? And you you think about the uh, economic catastrophe. And
1: the stats about the effect of the Great Black Recession, the, I still – my mouth is just I agape.
0: Mean, you think about the entire gains of the decade of the 90s just gone. That in some ways, uh, you know, one uh, kind of an, an analogy that might work would be we haven't seen this kind of loss of wealth, at least, since the collapse of the Freedmen's Bank in terms of black America. I mean this is this is huge – And one of the things, it's the housing crisis is at the heart of it because black wealth was principally located in in homes. And so you had epicenters, right, whether it's Miami, whether it's Atlanta, you know, the richest county in Maryland, right, black county, right? They're homes underwater in interesting sorts. I mean, not interesting sorts of ways, but homes underwater. Part of what I was trying to do is how do you respond to the, the specificity of that kind of pain, When Barack Obama was making claims that, you know, I'm not the president of black America, I'm the president of all America. And we were like, well, no one asked you whether or not you were president of black America, but you were president of a constituency that voted for you at 90 plus percent. How are you going to respond to this crisis?
1: Can you imagine if Barack Obama had catered to that 95 percent of the voters who put him into office the way that Donald Trump caters can, to his you, base. Ima- can oh, you imagine
0: he would have been impeached <laughs> the hell that would have broken loose. Right. So part of part of what I was trying to do in that moment was to kind of describe the nature of the pain that I was seeing and experiencing on the ground as people were talking about us making a turn out of the 2008 recession that Wall Street was bouncing back and folks were still losing their homes and folk were entering into a brutal rental market. Folk were still trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet because they were just re-entering the job market. All of this stuff was happening while people were telling us that we had turned a corner. The only thing I could conclude was that this is just another example of how black life is just devalued in this country. And that's when I tried to figure out, to offer language. And opportunity deserts became... One of the phrases that I came up with, which is, you know, these are places not where people are making bad choices. All human beings make bad choices. But these are sites where opportunities are just not available. You have choices that aren't good choices to make.
1: And then I like the way you contrasted Paul Ryan's depiction of Janesville, Wisconsin with your hometown of Moss Point, Mississippi. It's the selective memory. And this is kind of the broader point about when we talk about race in this country, and you make this point later in the book, what we put in and leave out of our stories tells us something about who we are. The 4th of July, Memorial Day, President's Day, and Martin Luther King Day are public rituals that tell a particular story about our national journey. And we aren't supposed to talk about the suffering. And when Paul Ryan describes Janesville, he doesn't talk about suffering. And it overlooks a really important part of the story for so many Americans. Talk a bit about why we don't talk about that story and what it says about the legacy of race in America.
0: Well, if we tell the true story about our journey to now, we have to confront ourselves honestly. It's going to reveal that America isn't simply a shining city on the hill, that at the core of who we are is a kind of violence and bloody legacy that shadows uh, our principles, that shadows our commitments and our self-descriptions. It's like Peter Pan in Never Never Land. And one of the interesting things about Never Never Land is that you never grow up, and the reason why you never grow up is because you don't have to be responsible. And so the part, of, the part of avoiding responsibility involves avoiding the very things you've done, right? So we have to tell ourselves a story that somehow the United States is this divinely sanctioned experiment and that we're always on the road, always, always on the road to a more perfect union. And so what I wanted to do is to, is to kind of trouble that exceptionalist story because what it does, it leaves out so much of the darker side and see, at least we're from Mississippi. There's no way to tell the story of Mississippi without telling the story of the blood in our soil. There's a reason why the blues comes from that place, right? It has something to do with the darkness of Mississippi. And, and it's, it's this beautiful contrast because it's the most genteel space. You have some of the most, I mean, some of the loveliest people on the planet, some of the best food, right? I mean, folks are so sweet. But it seems like under the cover of that sweetness... There's this real ugly dark side. And we can tell stories about the dark side. People putting razor blades and and, and Halloween candy, giving it to black kids when I was growing up. I remember in Moss Point, the Klan burning a cross right in the fairgrounds, right? At the border of Moss Point and Pascagoula. There's this ugliness that's a part of who we are. So when we tell a story that blinds us to injustice, it actually reveals the limits of our conception of justice.
1: And that, I think you coined the term, the values gap. And let's uh, quote again from the book, just because there's so much that's so quotable. We talk about the achievement gap in education or the wealth gap between white Americans and other groups. But the value gap reflects something more basic, that no matter our stated principles or how much progress we think we've made, white people are valued more than others in this country. And that fact continues to shape the life chances of millions of Americans. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, I was trying to get at this thing, right? So what's at the heart of this? You know, what, why do we find ourselves on this hamster wheel? And it has something to do with this belief that some people are better or more valued than others. And it drives our social, political, and economic realities. So even at the moment, and I could talk about it in these kind of historical periods, at the moment in which the country gives voice or what will become the country gives voice to the principles of democracy in the context of the American Revolution, we reconcile those principles with the institution of slavery. That's the value gap asserting because you even had folks at the Massachusetts Bay Colony using the principles animating the Declaration of Independence and what would become the Constitution to make the argument that Massachusetts should free slaves. Right. But it was rejected. But so here you have this moment where the principles of the revolution, the principles that undergird American democracy are denied to black folk. Why? Because they are viewed as somehow less than. Or you think about radical reconstruction in the moment in which we've just introduced modern warfare to the world and we've experienced a kind of carnage the world had never seen in the context of the Civil War. And we really have a genuine effort to build a multiracial democracy in this country, right? We're introduced public schools. We can talk about radical reconstruction in a certain sort of way and all of its details. And what do we get in response? We get convict leasing. We get Jim and Jane Crow or our racial apartheid in the South. And it's just, that's a reassertion of the value gap, right? So, American Revolution introduces something very powerful, gets arrested by reconciling those principles with racial slavery. Radical Reconstruction, it's the second founding. The Civil War is the second founding. Reconstruction is an attempt to make it a concrete reality. That gets arrested by what? Convict leasing and Jim Crow. And then think about the mid-20th century. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Civil Rights Movement. What do we get in response? We get calls for law and order. We get the tax revolt in California. arrests, and then Barack Obama gets elected in 2008. Well, and
1: this is part of the book that I found so interesting reading it in 2019. When you wrote this in 2015 at probably the height of Barack Obama's hold on elite thought, you know, I mean, it was was a very symbolic presidency. He did a lot of great things, but you— were unsparing when it came to describing the crisis of what it meant to have the first black president and then to have Barack Obama execute policy in the way that he did. And so this particular excerpt, the start of chapter seven, President Obama and black liberals, the opening line, who would have thought that the election of the nation's first black president would occasion the moment for this kind of crisis in black America? Barack Obama is, of course, not the reason we are between two worlds, but his presidency hasn't helped anything. Rather, he is emblematic of the problem.
0: I got wow. in a lot. Of, I got a lot. I know. I got a lot. I still get in a lot of trouble for that.
1: If you're making people talk and think you're doing um, something right. I got in a lot
0: of trouble for that. I mean, you know, think about remember that split screen in Baltimore where you had all of the black mayor and the black chief, just chief of police and uh, black folk uh, rioting in, in Baltimore. And then you had Barack Obama speaking. And it was very difficult for people to imagine how to talk about race with that image. Right. What and Barack Obama calling them thugs and 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 the like. Part of what I was trying to get at is that his ascendance was contingent upon a kind of quieting of his voice around the ways in which race right, continued to organize our country. And I understand the challenges he faced, but I wanted him to be bolder in that moment because what happens is that he he actually at at the highest level continued the dance and the dance is this overwhelming fear or what motivates the dance is this overwhelming fear of triggering white fear that if we talk about race if we try to address specifically the ways in which race undermine right our democratic form of life then somehow it'll trigger something in white folk and then all hell will break loose and so i can't be seen as angry And you can't be seen as racist. All the while, in between, is all the stuff that continues to happen. That is unsaid
1: and then happens and nothing changes. And so you're writing that circa 2015 era and you call it a slow dance that Barack Obama was doing. And then now, what would you say Donald Trump did 2016 election and is still doing now? I mean, talk about a dance that evolved into, I mean, I don't even know what to call it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump represents in so many ways the rot that's at the heart of the experiment. He embodies it. He's not exceptional. He's actually, he's been vomited up by us. He reflects us. And so he exploits our fears he mobili- That's the
1: saddest part of it, yeah, he reflects and he, us.
0: And he mobilizes our hatreds. Um, I've said before, and you know, it's a controversial claim, I tweeted not too long ago, that Donald Trump's argument for the wall is, is the equivalent of people arguing for Confederate monuments. It has nothing, Confederate monuments have nothing to do with history for the most part. And Donald Trump's claim around the wall has little to nothing to do with border security. Both are monuments to ideology. Both are symbolism symbols of a particular understanding of who we take ourselves to be. So, Confederate monuments were basically erected in the 1890s and in the, in the first few decades of the 20th century, and then in the 1950s. So, in effect, in the moment of the nadir, and in the moment in which segregation is being challenged, and so they are they are symbolic representations of a form of life that's under threat, right, or trying to consolidate itself. And here we have Donald Trump arguing for the wall. And he's arguing for the wall in the context in which demographic shifts, at least for some, seem to threaten the idea that America is a white nation in the vein of old Europe. And so he is in some ways a reflection of the latest instantiation of the reassertion of the value gap. Steve, I don't know about you, but one of my resolutions this year is to get to all of those books that you and I have been talking about. And Audible is going to help me do that. Absolutely, Adam, I'll be doing the same thing. In my car, I'll be listening to an Audible title. On the train, headphones on, Audible book. Well, as you know, I spent half my life on airplanes, and an Audible book is the perfect travel companion. If you're a multitasker like me, Steve, and Elise, Audible is the perfect answer. Listen during your workout, running errands, or even while cooking and cleaning. Audible, because words matter. Audible, because words matter.